0: But we want to read Isaiah chapter 64, and beginning at verse number 1. And we're going to read down through verse 4. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. As when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. When thou didst terrible things which we looked not for, thou camest down. The mountains flowed down at thy presence." For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. Amen. We'll end our reading there. May the Lord add his blessing to the public reading of his infallible word for his name's sake. We're going to take as our text the first verse of the chapter. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. Let us seek the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, It is our desire that thou wouldst come down, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, that thou wouldst demonstrate thy power. O Lord, we look unto thee. And we pray, Father, that in this gathering this evening, there will be the evidence of that coming down. O Lord, we thank thee for the promise that there are things that thou hast prepared for those who love thee. And we pray that tonight thou would begin to open our eyes to behold some of those things by the ministry of thy Spirit. O Lord, give us grace as we come to thy word now. Grant that thou wilt fill me with the power of thy Spirit to the very uttermost. And O Lord, draw near, we pray, in this hour, We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Immediately preceded by a long season of coldness and indifference, the great awakening broke upon the slumbering churches like a thunderbolt out of a clear sky. So wrote one New England minister in reflecting on one of the remarkable works of the Holy Spirit in New England. Near the end of 1739, so just over a century after the pilgrims landed at Plymouth and just a little more than a century after the formation of the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the founding of Harvard College, a work of divine grace began that affected most of the middle colonies and New England, and which continued until sometime in 1742. In the case of Jonathan Edwards and his congregation in Northampton, Massachusetts, the awakening followed by several years another work of God in which by the conservative estimates of Edwards himself, more than 300 people came to Christ in a relatively short period of time. And it's well for us to remember that the people who came to Christ were not what people today would define as the unchurched. These were people who had spent their lives in the church, who had sat under the ministry of the Word of God. So that suddenly people whom others no doubt thought were all right, suddenly they turned to Christ in faith was quite a sensation. By late 1735, Edwards surmised that there was hardly anyone in the town of Northampton whom the revival did not affect, and that there were very few people in the town who did not profess saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he had to admit then that during the years following that awakening, there was what he called a very lamentable decay of religious affections and the engagedness of people's spirit in religion. Now, there were still some special seasons for prayer, and there were still some conversions, but not on the scale, as prevailed in 1735. But in the spring of 1740, Edwards noted that there was a visible alteration. There was more seriousness and religious conversation, especially among young people. Those things that were of ill tendency among them were forborne. And it was a very frequent thing for persons to consult their minister upon the salvation of their souls. By the time George Whitfield, who was 25 years old, arrived in Northampton during the fall of that year of 1740, the work moved ahead. On one Sabbath day, Whitfield, who was preaching, recorded, preached this morning, and good Mr. Edwards wept during the whole time of exercise. The people were equally affected, and in the afternoon the power increased yet more. I have not seen four such gracious meetings together since my arrival. Edwards himself noted, that the congregation was extraordinarily melted by every sermon, almost the whole assembly being in tears for a great part of sermon time. There was solemn attention to the ministry of the Word by nearly every person in attendance at the meeting house. That focus on the preaching of the Word was a leading mark of that revival as it was in other revivals throughout the history of the church. Among teenagers and young adults and some children as well, the most profound work took place. Solemnly, those who were among the children and young people in 1735, but who did not come to faith in Christ at that time, did not demonstrate any impact in the subsequent revival of 1740 to 1742. And the reminder is that the time for trusting in Christ is always now. Those who presume that they will have a subsequent opportunity and who therefore do not trust in Christ find that later they have no interest in doing so. Now it's hard to calculate the precise impact of the Great Awakening. Ministers of that period and its probably because they just didn't have the benefit of later generations, they didn't keep a record of the conversions. They knew that not all professions of faith were actual conversions. Later generations invented other measures to maximize the appeals to the unconverted. But Jonathan Edwards and his contemporaries knew the folly of such schemes. They knew that conversion was the sole work of the Holy Spirit. Oh, for a revival of that conviction today. They dared not intrude on that work. The only means for measuring the impact of the awakening was the number of people who joined the role of communicant members in the church. And again, it's well to point out that there were many people in the church who were not communicant members. They were simply attenders at the church. Sometimes the figures of new members were dramatic. In a period of just six months in 1735, in the earlier revival, about 220 people became members of the church in Northampton. And at one point, Edwards believed, as he wrote, that about four people every day professed faith in Christ. And yet that work seemed impossible before it began. In fact, Jonathan Edwards and other ministers often bemoaned the dullness and spiritual ignorance that was rampant among the people. It puts me in mind of the situation that existed in the same area in advance of the second great awakening at the beginning of the 19th century when there were ministers who had labored preaching to the same people year in and year out, who had the conviction in their hearts that many of these people were not saved. So the people, the ministers of that time, felt that there was little hope, that the situation would change. And then there came, in the words of our text this evening, Isaiah 64 in verse 1, the rending of the heavens. There was no audible sound, there was no visible demonstration, but God came down to do marvelous works. Jonathan Edwards was active, of course, as the minister of his congregation, but he also received frequent invitations to go elsewhere to help other churches that wanted also the moving of God. They longed to witness what we may call this evening revival's biblical manifestation. Revival's biblical manifestation. During most of this month of February in this year, the focus of the religious news has been on an event that many were very quick to label a revival. It took place in a charismatic setting at Asbury University in the Commonwealth of Kentucky and by various reports, has spread to other places since then. Although Asbury University has now taken measures to return campus life to a more normal pattern because the students had to take their midterm exams, so they couldn't let them out of that. The movement that took place at Asbury University was notable for its lack of preaching and its ecumenical appeal and its lack of calling people to repent of sin, especially the sins of perversion. The interest in it underscored a longing for something different. People came from all over the country and indeed all around the world and were willing to stand in long lines in the cold to gain admission to the chapel where these events were taking place. So there was a longing for something different, whatever form that difference took. There is a common perception that human activity and ingenuity can generate revivals. So whether they are raucous sessions of so-called worship music or carefully orchestrated psychological manipulations that stir up powerful emotions, these are the things that are viewed as necessary. Charles Finney's unhappy legacy in the 19th century to American evangelicalism undermined the theology of revival as Edwards understood it and replaced it with a counterfeit fashioned from the material of Arminianism. The typical pattern in most churches today is that if the people or ministers want to have a revival, they hold a series of special services with a traveling evangelist who is skillful at generating decisions. The Great Awakening, however, did not arise out of those devices. Jonathan Edwards did not envision himself as the bringer of revival, the architect of the Great Awakening. He saw himself just as an instrument in God's hand. What Edwards and others wanted was the consciousness of the presence of God among his people. And they prayed accordingly that God, in the words of our text this evening, would rend the heavens and come down. Now in this great awakening, as it is called historically, there were three distinct phases. And it's hard to pinpoint a beginning. Because these phases began, it was the work of God, before the coming, the evidence of the revival. The first phase we call preparation. Preparation. Sometime during the 1730s, Jonathan Edwards began a sermon with this sentence. It is the manner of God before he bestows any signal mercy on the people first to prepare them for it. Now when we think of the words of our text this evening and the evident expression of intense desire that the prophet had in the the words of our text Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens. There was a longing there. And that was a longing that God implanted in the soul of the prophet. That desire for God to come down. Edwards said that such preparation often escaped the perception of those to whom it came. In the case of Edwards, as a person, as an individual, the preparation concerned the solidifying of his theological views and the humbling of his soul. The humbling of his soul. The latter, that humbling, he considered to be extremely important if he was to be of any use in the ministry. He liked to speak of his desire often expressed in prayer to lie infinitely low before God. He relied on scripture texts like the one we find in the epistle of James chapter 4. Let us turn there. James chapter 4 and verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Humble yourselves. I think we can say that the great majority, if not the entirety of the problems that arise in churches today can be laid at the door of the lack of humbling before God. Edwards faced the enormity of his sin and the offensiveness of his sin before God. In his view, the plumbing of the depths of human depravity magnified the gospel of saving grace. Now the situation religiously in this period, the 1730s in New England, was one in which the robust Calvinism, the legacy of the Protestant Reformation that bolstered the early settlers, the pilgrims first, and then the Puritans in Boston, gave way to a softer model. The last time I was here, I spoke a little bit about that truth for Christ and the church and how the experience of Harvard College Was a key indicator of the departure. More liberal and even infidel views of Christianity invaded Harvard College and began filling the pulpits of Massachusetts with ministers who were adept in the language of Scripture at tickling the ears of those to whom they spoke. The egalitarian spirit of the colonies. Did not mesh with the biblical emphasis on the absolute sovereignty of God. Edwards admitted that before his conversion, and remember he was brought up in the home of a minister, before his conversion he despised Calvinistic doctrine. He said, From my childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty in choosing whom he would to eternal life and rejecting whom he pleased, leaving them eternally to perish and be everlastingly tormented in hell. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me. No doubt he heard it many times from his father who pastored the church in which he grew up for 65 years. But after Edwards came to faith in Christ, he saw the matter differently. He said, but I have often since that first conviction had quite another kind of sense of God's sovereignty than I had then. I have often since had not only a conviction, but a delightful conviction. The doctrine has very often appeared exceeding pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. He came to see that if God did not intervene to save a sinner's soul, there was no hope for that sinner. He grasped that no one can accuse God of injustice. In a lecture that Edwards delivered in Boston on July 8, 1731, when he was 27, he argued that sinners are completely reliant on God for their salvation. He stressed by his statement that he meant every aspect of salvation – They have to rely on God for redemption, for saving faith, for the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration, for sanctification, for justification for everything. Now to us, hopefully it seems readily acceptable, but the common view in that time was opposed to what Edwards preached. The thought was his ideas were outmoded. Very few young men of his generation subscribed to these ideas. And beyond that, the effect of a more liberal approach to theology was that the tenor of the preaching declined to a seriously deficient level. And when Edwards and others sought to preach in a more earnest and direct fashion, people mocked them as ranters, who had no appreciation for the fine elegance of cultured speech and the pulpit. In those years, that was the situation. In those years, God prepared the way for a powerful move of his spirit. But the preparation was taking place behind the scenes. It wasn't readily perceptible. But it is the common pattern that the Lord employs before any move of His Spirit. When the people of God get a burden to seek after Him, that is a sign that God is working. When sinners begin to show concern about their destiny, that is a sign that God is working. There is a general spirit of waiting on God. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. And in verse 4, Since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. So that preparation led to the second phase of the great awakening, expectation. We've already noted uh, the more localized work that took place in 1735 when Edwards observed something that had changed in the town at that time. He said there was a great and earnest concern about the things of religion and the eternal world. And that concern became universal in all parts of the town and among persons of all degrees and all ages. All other talk but about spiritual and eternal things was soon thrown by. All the conversation in all companies and upon all occasions was upon these things only. Unless so much as was necessary for people carrying on their ordinary secular business. The minds of people were wonderfully taken off from the world. It was treated among us as a thing of very little consequence. Instead of resorting to the tavern for relaxation, the people of the town would gather at the home of the minister. But it was in the church building itself where the greatest change was evident, as Edwards described it. He said, Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on the public worship. Every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister as they came from his mouth. The assembly in general were from time to time in tears while the word was preached. Some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. Our public praises were then greatly enlivened. God was then served in our psalmody in some measure in the beauty of holiness. It has been observable that there has been scarce any part of divine worship wherein good men amongst us have had grace so drawn forth and their hearts so lifted up in the ways of God as in singing His praises. So the revival was evident not in some casual or popular approach to worship, but in turning the people again more seriously to the things that they sang. A publisher in London got hold of the account that Edwards wrote in 1735 and printed an extended narrative about the revival. One of the investors in the project was the nonconformist hymn writer Isaac Watts. John Wesley read that account on October 9th, 1738, just Three years later, Wesley was almost the same age as Edwards, and he wrote in his journal, I set out for Oxford, meaning on foot, by the way. In walking, I read the truly surprising narrative of the conversions lately wrought in and about the town of Northampton in New England. Surely, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes." This awakening of 1735 raised the hopes of Edwards and others that God was going to do something on a wider scale. The spiritual impetus of the founding generation in New England had been lost. The doctrine was still there, it was largely orthodox, but the impact of godliness in the lives of the people was practically non-existent. Archibald Alexander wrote, The habit of the preachers was to address their people as though they were all pious and only needed instruction and confirmation. It was not a common thing to proclaim the terrors of a violated law and to insist on the absolute necessity of regeneration. Edwards observed as well that preachers who gained popular acclaim were those who were very careful and modulated in their addresses. And that therefore the earnest or what he called the pathetical style of preaching where the preacher would exhort people, to trust in Christ, that that had gone out of fashion. He said, our people do not so much need to have their heads stored as to have their hearts touched. And they stand in the greatest need of that sort of preaching, which has the greatest tendency to do this. So they saw, the men of this period, they saw the duty of preaching as trying to disturb the comfort of sinners. To show sinners they had no hope but in God's power. But there remained remarkable apathy. One contemporary witness wrote that at the dawn of the year 1740, religion lay, as it were, a dying and ready to expire its last breath of life in this part of the visible church. They knew that God must move. This was the expectation, and God moved. And that's the third thing that we find, demonstration. As I've indicated already, there was, during that year of 1740, a transformation, especially in the middle and northern American colonies. Those who never in their lives felt the power of the preaching of the word suddenly saw hell opening before their eyes and felt themselves about to fall into it. One notable incident from the ministry of George Whitfield in Connecticut during this time captures something of the spirit of this awakening, or in Massachusetts it was, This was the recounting by a farmer, not a trained theologian, just a farmer, who said, Now it pleased God to send Mr. Whitfield into this land. And my hearing of his preaching at Philadelphia, like one of the old apostles, and many thousands flocking after him to hear the gospel, and great numbers converted to Christ, I felt the Spirit of God drawing me by conviction. Next, I heard he was on Long Island, and next at Boston, and next at Northampton, and then one morning, all on a sudden, about 8 or 9 o'clock, there came a messenger and said, Mr. Whitfield preached at Hartford and Weathersfield yesterday, those are towns in Connecticut, and is to preach at Middletown this morning at 10 o'clock. I was in my field at work. I dropped my tool that I had in my hand and ran home and ran through my house and bade my wife get ready quick to go and hear Mr. Whitfield preach at Middletown and ran to my pastor for my horse with all my might, fearing I should be too late to hear him. I brought my horse home and soon mounted and took my wife up and went forward as fast as I thought the horse could bear. And when my horse began to be out of breath, I would get down and put my wife in the saddle and bid her ride as fast as she could and not stop or slack for me except I bade her. And so I would run until I was almost out of breath and then mount my horse again. And so I did several times to favor my horse, for we had 12 miles to ride double in little more than an hour. Then he recorded that on high ground, out ahead of him, he saw what looked like a cloud or a fog rising. He thought at first it was from the river nearby, but he said as he came nearer, he heard a noise, something like a low rumbling of horses' feet coming down the road, and this cloud was a cloud of dust made by the running of horses' feet. It arose some rods in the air over the tops of the hills and trees, and when I came within about 20 rods of the road, I could see men and horses slipping along in the cloud like shadows and when i came nearer it was like a steady stream of horses and their riders scarcely a horse more than his length behind another all of a lather and some with sweat they had heard there was there were no social media posts they had heard that george whitfield was going to preach in that town. He said, no one said anything. Everybody was intent on getting to the place. And when he said, when we got down to the old meeting house, there was a great multitude. It was said to be three or four thousand people assembled together here in the morning of a working day. We got off from our horses and shook off the dusts. The dust and the ministers were coming to the meeting house, and then he wrote that he looked towards the river nearby and saw ferry boats running swift forward and backward, bringing over loads of people to the place. Everything, men, horses, and boats, all seemed to be struggling for life. The land and the banks over the river looked black with people and horses. All along the 12 miles I saw no man at work in his field, but all seemed to be gone. Why? Because they knew that they had to hear what Whitfield was going to preach. Another minister wrote that there was in the minds of the people a general fear of sin and of God's wrath. There seemed to be this sense that all the ways of men were before the eyes of the Lord. It was the opinion of men of discernment and sound judgment who had the best opportunities of knowing the feelings and general state of the people at that period, that bags of gold and silver and other precious things might with safety have been laid in the streets, and that no man would have converted them to his own use. Because there was repentance. This writer went on to say, theft, wantonness, intemperance, Profaneness, Sabbath-breaking, and other gross sins appeared to be put away. The intermissions on the Lord's Day, instead of being spent in worldly conversation and vanity, as had been too usual before, were now spent in religious conversation, in reading and singing the praises of God. And so the work went on and continued into the following year of 1741. During the summer of that year, Edwards was in Enfield, Connecticut, and I have been at the place where he was. Uh, The place where the meeting house was at that time is now the site of a convent. It's uh, a commentary on how that religious heritage has been jettisoned. He was to supply the pulpit for another man on the evening of July 8th. And the text that he chose was Deuteronomy 32 and 35, their foot shall slide in due time. And he preached a sermon that may have been made up of parts of other sermons that he had preached before that was to enter American literature under the title of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. When I was in high school, in a public high school, and we were in English class, that sermon was in our textbook. And it was an assignment that we were given. I don't believe that the teacher had any particular interest in it, But nevertheless, it was regarded as part of the classic collection of American literature. The scene, as a witness recorded it, was striking. This man wrote, We went over to Enfield, where we met dear Mr. Edwards of Northampton, who preached a most awakening sermon from these words Deuteronomy 32:35 and before the sermon was done there was a great moaning and crying out through the whole house what shall i do to be saved oh i'm going to hell oh what shall i do for christ and so on so that the minister was obliged to desist the shrieks and cries were piercing and amazing after some time of waiting, the congregation were still so that a prayer was made by Mr. Whitfield. And after that, we descended from the pulpit and discoursed with the people, some in one place and some in another. And amazing and astonishing, the power of God was seen. The testimony of those who were there was that they grasped the hymn, the, the, backs of the pews because they felt if they did not they would fall into hell. This atmosphere, this attitude did not come about without preparation. This demonstration of God's power wrought a true awakening and as has been true of Other similar movements of God, the hallmark of it was that those who were touched by that awakening never got over it. The rest of their lives, they stayed true to the cause of the gospel. You will see then that revival in our time has been completely redefined. Now it is strictly some kind of an emotional experience. Where here, the focus was on what the Word of God said, and that focus on the Word of God led the people to the place of turning away from sin. Now I have not made a study of all that has gone on in this month, But I think I can say safely that there hasn't been any call to turn away from sin. But that is the hallmark of revival. That is the biblical manifestation of revival. Isaiah prayed for God to come down. That was the prayer that the people on the island of Lewis in the middle of the 20th century, prayed that God would rend the heavens and come down. And God did come down. Oh, that today, in our time, we would come back to this truth of what constitutes a real revival and pray that God would be pleased again to rend the heavens and to come down. Let us bow together in prayer. Let us seek the Lord. Our gracious Father and our eternal God, we can scarcely encompass in this short space the full range of the work that Thou didst accomplish in those days. And yet, Lord, we find it sobering that this work tended to be forgotten and that as generations passed and the people affected by the awakening passed off the scene, those who came after them did not appreciate what had taken place. O Lord, we pray in our time for the rending of the heavens. We pray, O Lord, that Thou wouldst come down That the mountains might flow down at thy presence. The mountains of unbelief. The mountains of perversion. O Lord, bring those mountains down by the coming down of thy presence. O Lord, hear our cry, we pray. Grant us the discernment we need. To stick to the scriptures and to keep our focus on that which is the work of our sovereign God of revival. Hear our cry, we pray, and write thy word upon our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.